uh, be here. And uh, I love Prineville. This is my first time here, and I have fallen in love with your town and your county. And uh, I love your courthouse. It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I love your pastor and his beautiful, beautiful family. And uh, like Rory was saying, I've known Rory a long, long time. And uh, back in the church in Corvallis, if uh, there was any mischievous behavior going on, Rory was usually the first suspect. And, uh, <laughs> and what's so funny about it is uh, this was all growing up through middle school and high school. And what's so funny was then Rory became our high school pastor. And right before Rory came to Prineville, he led a team down to Brazil. And um, <clears throat> the boys decided to pull this prank on the girls. I don't know if Rory ever told you this story or not, but you're going to hear it today. <laughs> the boys went out and they bought this pet rat. Yeah, and you can imagine what they did with it. They let it loose in the girls' room. The boys were, I don't know if they were on different floors or they were in different rooms. And so the boys, without the girls knowing about it, let this rat loose in the girls' room. And, of course, it was a huge deal. The girls all freaked out. They called the uh, owner of the restaurant, of the uh, hotel. He freaked out. He calls this extermination company. And so it's like it wound up just getting way out of hand. So finally, um, the boys had to come and confess to Rory. Now, to me, what's so funny about this is I can just imagine Rory chewing these guys out when deep, deep down inside of him, he is going, man, I wish I would have thought of that when I was in high school. <laughs> That's Rory. <laughs> okay, well, boy, what an honor for me to be here. And uh, let's pray. Lord, we just want to honor you. Lord, this Father's Day, we want to honor you as our Father, Lord. And what an incredible thing that we can call you our Father. And Lord, we just tell you that all honor belongs to you, Lord. You alone deserve honor and praise and glory and thanksgiving, Lord. And so today, even before we start, we just stop and we tell you, Lord, what an honor that you are our Father, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege to be called your children. And thank you, Lord, just for this time now that we can look into your words. And Lord, I just pray you would give me your heart to speak and you would give us listening ears to hear what you'd have to say to us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, I'm going to share something, and, and this isn't going to be a real long message, but I'm going to share something with you all that I think is uh, something about God that, we're, that has become obscure to us in a lot of ways. And yet I think it's the most important thing about God. And the uh, anthropologists and theologians tell us that the uh, greatest thing about a society or a person is their view of God. And that no society or person has ever risen above their view of who God is. And so, uh, who is God? 
What is he like? And uh, today I'm just going to talk a little bit about the holiness of God. And I think it's something as a, as a nation we've lost sight of. And as a church, I think we, I think we need to just look at this today. So we're going to start in uh, 2 Samuel, the Old Testament, chapter 6. Okay, here's what's going on here. There is this thing called the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant. And it was this object that uh, God instructed the Hebrews to build, and it represented where the glory of God dwelled. Well, it had been taken captive by the Philistines. And the Philistines took it and they put it in their, the house of their idol, Dagon, And they came in the next morning, and Dagon had fallen over and was laying prostrate to the ark of God. So the Philistines got Dagon. They put him back up on on his stand and uh, came back the next morning, and Dagon had fallen over again. And this time he got broken in two. So the Philistines, and and then the Philistines started having all of these horrible diseases breaking out on them. And so they decided, we have got to get rid of the ark of God. So they put it on a cart, they put these two cows to it, and the cows, they just go wandering off, and it winds up in the house of this Jew named um, Abinadad. And so that's where we're going to start reading. And what's going to happen here is David is now king of Israel, and it's in his heart to bring the ark of God from the house of Abinadad to Jerusalem, where he wants to build a temple for it. So Second uh, Samuel 6:2, David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Bel Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the Ark of God on a new cart, first mistake. This is, what the, uh, this is how the Philistines got the Ark of God to Abinadad's house. That they might bring it from Abinadad's house, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadad, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the Ark of God from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the cart. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassinets and cymbals. They were celebrating. Special day in the uh, nation of Israel. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon... Yuza makes a big, big mistake. He reaches out toward the ark of God to take hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. Now, God had given very, very strict and specific instructions 
of how to deal with the uh, ark, who was to handle it, how it was to be transported. You were supposed to, there were these four rings on the ark, and there were these poles, and you were supposed to put poles through it and lift it up and carry it by these poles, and no one was ever to touch the ark. It was forbidden by God. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. Now, I'm reading the New American Standard. In some of the Bibles, um, it says error, but that's really not a good uh, translation. It was for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst, outburst against Yuzah. And that place is called Pezra Yuzah to this day. And so David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now it seems to us, man, Yuzah was sincere. He was just trying to do a good thing. This seems so extreme. And I mean, you know, the big thing today is uh, all paths lead to God as long as we're sincere. Right? Wrong. And uh, this, this passage is, is really special to me because I kind of had a similar experience. I was sharing with some of the men at the men's retreat. And I said, you guys got to come to Sunday to hear this part of my testimony. So here's what happened to me. I was, uh, the first time I ever read the Bible, I was in jail. And it wasn't because of a mistake in identity. And it wasn't the first time I'd been in jail. It was the third time. But this time when I was in jail, I was desperate. And for the first time in my life, I read the Bible. And I had, when I was in that jail, I had this um, encounter with God. And I saw that if God became a man and walked on this planet, then the most important thing in all of life was to come to terms with that. So um, through an incredible chain of events, I, the crime, we were planting marijuana in southern Oklahoma in 1971, and uh, we should have gone to prison for 10 years with no parole. That was the law then. But through a miraculous chain of events, after I prayed to God, we got charged with a misdemeanor. And two weeks later, we were out of jail. So uh, we're celebrating and having this big party. And how do you party when you get out of jail for doing or planning illegal drugs? You party using illegal drugs, right? And so everybody's celebrating and everybody's having a great time. And... Uh, it was the day before Easter Sunday, and this movie was on TV, Ben-Hur. Any of you guys ever seen that movie? Incredible movie. It's about Jesus. And uh, nobody's watching this thing. Everybody's partying and celebrating except me. And inside of me, man, there is this war going on. I have got to come to terms with this Jesus. So I decided that the next morning, I was going to get up early, and it was Easter Sunday morning, 
And I was going to hike up this river there in Oklahoma, and I was going to find God. So I got up early, and I got the Bible that they gave me when I was in the jail in one hand, and I got my two marijuana cigarettes in the other hand, and I start hiking up this river. And I was sincere. And uh, the sun was coming up, and there was a south breeze blowing, and the birds were singing, and there were these beautiful, fluffy, white, cumulus clouds, and God was smiling on me, right? Well, I get about 10 miles up this river, and uh, now it's the afternoon, and those white, fluffy, cumulus clouds... It was one of those days in Oklahoma, springtime, where all the conditions were just right for those clouds to grow into these monster thunderstorms. And that's what happened. And I am 10 miles up this river, and this thunderstorm, they, back there they call them supercells. And the, tower, the tops of these things go into the stratosphere. And this thunderstorm moves right over me. And it gets dark. And I'm looking up into these clouds and they are swirling and churning and it has this, it's this weird dark green color. And I'm thinking, I have got to find some place to hide. And so there's this tree, I'm looking, I'm going to go get under that tree. And right when I think that, bam! Lightning strikes a tree right across the river from me. And then, bam, lightning strikes another tree right behind me. And then I remember my Boy Scouts. The last place you go in a thunderstorm is under a tree. And I really thought I was going to die that day. That's the closest to death I think I have ever been. I was so scared, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I thought, man, if the lightning doesn't kill me, then the tornado will. And if the tornado doesn't kill me, then the hail will. And if the hail doesn't kill me, then the flood that's going to be coming down this river will. But I'm going way before any of that stuff because I'm going to die of a heart attack right now. (laughs) And I turned around and I started running Now remember, I went up there to find God. And it, I thought I was going to die. And I didn't realize it at the time, but later after I got gotten saved, I thought about that experience in my life. And I think to a very, very, very small degree, I did find God that day. But I was looking for him, and I was coming to him on my terms. And God is holy. We do not come to God on our terms. The arrogancy of man to think that we can come to God on our terms And that the only thing that matters is that we're sincere. That was Uzziah's, or Uzzah's, mistake. So let's look at this holiness of God. Revelation, chapter 4.
After these things, I looked, and by the way, I'm reading out of a New American Standard Bible. I don't know if that's what you guys use or not, but let me read to you this, uh, what's in the front page of this Bible. Holy Bible, to Tom Ewers, from your loving wife, Donna. March 28, 1981. My wife wanted to come here today, but she got sick, so she couldn't. And I'm thinking, I've got a couple of daughters that live in Bend, and I think they're going to come second service. So, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, was like, now you're going you're to read this word, like, a lot. And really what John, he is trying to describe to us something that is indescribable. It was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. And he said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, there was a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, and it was like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 elders, and upon the thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, and from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as if it were, a sea of glass of crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures. And then he tries to describe to us what these creatures were like. And we get these images in our head, but it, this is he cannot describe what these creatures are really like. The first was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third was, had the face like that of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within... And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast down their crowns before the throne and say, Worthy art thou, our Lord, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things. And because of your will, all things exist and are created. He is the self-existing one. He is the only thing that is not created. Everything else that is was created by him. 
What is he like? Well, here we see him, or John sees him, and he's trying to describe what he's like. And it's in heaven. It's not here on earth where our view of who God is is obscured. But there, there's no, there's no shadows. There's no deception. There's no enemy whispering in our ear, did God really say, is God really like this? It's clear. And what is the one thing they say? What is the, the um, paramount view of God in heaven? They don't say loving, loving, loving. They don't say righteous, righteous, righteous. He is loving. He is righteous. But it's like in the presence of who God really is, there's one thing they say, that he's holy. And it's clear. He is holy. And it says that they say it day and night, and they don't ever stop saying it. That means they say it day and night, and they don't ever stop saying it. In other words, they're saying it right now. They have been saying it ever since these creatures were created. It is the predominant view of who God is in heaven. And it's the music of heaven. It never stops being sung or being said. It's the music of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. And when you read the book of Revelation and you think of all of these horrible things that are going on on the earth, and God is pouring out his judgment on sinful, rebellious man who refuses to repent, when all that's going on in heaven, these angels never stop saying, God is holy. And you know, I think a... uh, a question that we all really struggle with. How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, I, uh, I work at HP Hewlett-Packard in Corvallis, Oregon, and I am a technician in the clean room there. And we build uh, silicon, these little micro circuits on silicon. And our biggest enemy is particles. And these circuits are so small, you can't even see them. You have to use a microscope to see them. And so the tiniest little particle can destroy one of these circuits. Now, you can give me a silicon wafer that we build these circuits on, and it can be pristine. There are no particles that I can see on this wafer, or that you can see, or that anybody can see. You can take the same wafer and you can put it under a microscope and you will not see any particles. But we have a machine that's called the SP-1 and it uses a laser. It has a higher standard than I have. 
or than you have. And it can see particles that you can't even see through a microscope. It has a higher standard. And so the process that we do at Hewlett-Packard is based on what the SP1 says, how clean it is. Not on how clean I say it is. Not on how clean the president of Hewlett-Packard says it is. And I think the reason we struggle with this question, how can a loving God send people to hell? It's because we do not know what it means that he is holy. Let's look at it. And you can't talk about this without going to uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of the robe, his robe filling the temple, and there were seraphim above him. By the way, this book was written 800 years before the book of Revelation. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here it is again. We're in heaven again. And what is the paramount declaration of who God is? He is holy. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was calling out. They weren't whispering it. They were booming it. In Revelation, it said it was like the voice of thunder. While the temple was filled with smoke, Then I, so here is Isaiah. Here is Isaiah, the venerable, the respected, the esteemed prophet of Israel. If anyone had a reason to feel good about himself before God, it was Isaiah. Then I said, Woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am unclean. It's like the SP-1 shined its laser light. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. You know, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. They came to him and they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples how to pray? And Jesus says, okay, 
when you pray, and then I think what he said first is the most important thing about prayer. Remember what he said? Our Father. I think Jesus said that. That's the first thing Jesus teaches us about prayer. That we are coming to our Father. That's the most important thing about prayer. That he is our Father. And for Jesus to say that was so radical in his day. But then, and you know what's neat is it's something we can relate to. It's Father's Day. But then it's like Jesus turns on a dime and takes us somewhere where we cannot relate to. He says, Our Father who art in heaven. And then he goes right here. You're holy. Your name is holy. Hallowed be thy name. I wonder if a big reason why our prayers aren't effective is because we do not treat God as holy. Do you know what that that word, hallowed be thy name, means? It means that he is holy. Now you treat him as holy. Okay. Three rebukes or exhortations, whatever you want to call them. I remember when uh, we were in Brazil one time, I noticed that the Brazilians didn't put their Bibles on the floor. And I didn't know if I was just noticing something or if if that was the way it was in Brazil. So when we got back, we have a Brazilian in our church, Hanata, and I said, Hey, Hanata, I noticed in Brazil that the Brazilians don't put their Bibles on the floor. And she goes, yeah, we don't do that in Brazil. We feel like it's disrespectful to God's word. Well, I don't know how you guys do here, but in Corvallis, many churches I've been to, we put our Bibles on the floor. And, you know, uh, one of our favorite things to do, me and all of my five kids, we love going to the Beaver football games in Corvallis. And one of the cool things they do there is they have this huge flag. And it is probably uh, 30 yards long and 20 yards wide. And it's so amazing to me how the incredible effort they go to to never let that flag touch the ground. And people that are trained to handle the American flag, you don't let our flag touch the ground. Why? I mean, it's just red, white, and blue cloth, right? Yeah. It's what it represents. It represents our nation, our values, and our history, and uh, the people that died to give us our freedom. Isn't it amazing how, what great effort we go to for the American flag? But our Bibles. I mean, they're just cellulose and ink, right? No. I'll bet every one of your Bibles, somewhere in there, it says, Holy. Holy Bible. I don't put my Bible on the ground anymore. And, uh, you know, I don't want to make another rule, and I mean, for you guys, lay down another law, but I think what this indicates to us as the American church is we have lost sight 
that God is holy. And we need to treat him as holy. There are some things that are sacred. Did you know when the Maseratis, who were Jews that would um, make copies of the Bible back a thousand years ago, and the oldest Bibles, uh, the Old Testament that we have today in museums, were written by these Maserati uh, scribes. Did you know what they would do when they were uh, making a copy of the Bible? When they came to God's name, they would stop writing. They would get up and they would wash. Some uh, scholars say they would wash their entire body. And then... Some scholars say they would either clean their pen or others say they had a special pen. And they would write God's holy name. It was holy to them. They feared God. Then they would pick up their other pen and start writing again. In our country, we use his name as a profanity. Shame on us. We have lost sight of the holiness of God. Who can stand? Who can stand before this holy, holy, holy God? Isaiah couldn't. Well, let's look at back to Revelation chapter 6. Is there any hope? Revelation 6, verse 12. And I looked, and he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed from their places. The day of the Lord. Now God's not going to be obscured anymore. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong. These are the movers and shakers. These are the people that are on the headlines of CNN. And every slave and free man, they hid themselves among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For their great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? The answer is the very next chapter. Verse 9, chapter 7. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, they were standing. They were standing before the throne 
And remember, as they're standing there, those seraphim are booming. Holy, holy, holy. And they're clothed with white robes. And there's palm branches in their hands. And then they cry out. So now it's a melody. It's a symphony. They cry out with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How can this be? Flip over just the book right in front of Revelation to Jude. Uh, Jude's just one chapter, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Those are just words on a page to us. We cannot begin to relate to what this is. The presence of his glory. We are going to stand in the presence of his glory. Look at the next word, blameless. What? Yeah. Blameless. Before a holy, holy, holy God, we are going to stand blameless. Without guilt. Without Shame. How can that be? I am guilty. I've done a lot of things I am ashamed of. Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross, he was naked? Usually the pictures we see of him, there's a little towel wrapped around him. He was naked. Can you imagine the shame of being publicly naked. He bore our shame. He took our shame. And we are going to stand before a holy God clothed in what was for him. We're going to be clothed in the robes of his righteousness. With great joy. Not great dread. Not great fear. Not great anguish. We're going to stand before him with great joy. How can that be? Back to Revelation. And verse 14 or verse 13. The questions asked. One of the elders answers, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And then he answers the question, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, 
And for this reason alone, they stand. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. And they shall hunger no more, and they shall thirst no more. And the sun shall not beat down on them with any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water of life. And God, as the cherubim are booming, holy, 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 God will wipe every tear from their eyes. It is by the blood of the Lamb that sinful man can come to a holy God. And I think we do not understand the depths of our depravity and we do not understand the holiness of God. But the day is coming when we will. I'm just going to close with this. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Passover, and Passover is the oldest celebrated holiday in the history of the world. And I remember this story how God was bringing all of these judgments on Egypt. And the last judgment that he was going to bring was the death of the firstborn of every house. But there was a way out. God provided a way of escape from his judgment. And that was if you took a lamb that was unblemished and you killed the lamb and then you took the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your house. Then when the judgment of God came into the land and it saw the blood, it would pass over your house. And so those who believed obeyed and walked in what God had prescribed. And so they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on their doorposts and their lintel. But there was that short little time when uh, the blood's on the, the blood is over them, but the judgment of God hasn't come yet. And I mean, it was like they probably wondered, God, this is really stupid what we're doing here. I mean, it seems so foolish to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. But then the judgment came. And Pharaoh said, get out of Egypt. So they're loading their carts and they're getting ready to leave. And I can just see the mom running into the house one last time. Everything's loaded. Everything's ready to go. And she grabs that last, most valuable thing that she has, her sleeping little firstborn baby. And she's going out and she's getting in the cart and she looks down the street and she sees the Egyptians, the unbelievers, burying their firstborn. And she just, she reaches down her face and she, she can smell his breath and she can feel his warmth and she can hear the little, little noises that little babies make. And, oh, he's alive. And she gets into the cart and she's leaving. And she looks back at that, their little hut one more time. And she sees it. The blood. 
then. It's then that she realizes the value and the power and the truth of the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we just want to thank you for this time. And Lord, you are holy. And I just pray, Lord, you would teach us what that means. In Jesus' name.